This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. You probably realize by now that the uh, theme of our weekend is stirring the depths. We're calling it stirring the depths. Uh, what do we mean by that? You know, what do we mean? Um, what are these depths that we're talking about? Well, I think we're talking about, firstly, the depths in ourselves, the parts of ourselves that perhaps we're not usually aware of. Um, parts of our being that we don't usually access. And then I think as well, we're talking about the depths of the universe, the depths of reality. Um, the Dharma tells us that the nature of things is deep. Our reality is deep. So our society conditions us to see just the surface appearances of things um, as real. So matter, the surface, form, uh, is what's real, and nothing else is real. Um, everything else is just in the mind. We've invented it. Um, but the Dharma tells us that this ain't so. Uh, the Dharma tells us that there are depths behind this surface that we see with our eyes. So the Buddha, for example, tells his companion Ananda, um, Ananda, this Dharma is deep beyond the reach of words. Um, and by the word Dharma here, well, I mean, we sometimes think that means the Buddha's teaching, but by the word Dharma here, I don't think the Buddha just means his teaching. He's not sort of saying, hey, Arada, you know, I'm really clever. This is deep stuff, I'm telling you. He's not, he's not saying that. At its deepest level, at its sort of most profound level, Dharma means the nature of things. <laughs> so he's using that in the, the word Dharma in its fullest sense. He's saying the nature of things is deep. Uh, and then again, in the uh, Perfection of Wisdom Sutras, the Perfection of Wisdom in 8,000 lines, the Buddha tells his disciple Subhuti, form is deep, Subhuti. Deep, Gambira. Um, he's saying, this form, this matter that we see with our eyes is just the surface. It's just the surface. There are depths. There are depths behind this. There are depths behind this surface. There are deep values and deep meaning woven into the nature of things. Um, and you might have had some sense of this. I've, I suspect that most of us have had some sense of this, a sense that things are a lot more mysterious and even a bit magical than we usually think. Maybe when we're meditating a lot, um, when we spend time alone, when we spend time out of the sort of concrete boxes that we usually inhabit, out in nature, um, when we look up into the infinite depths of a starry night, uh, it's really quite difficult not to get a sense of this, that the reality we're part of is deep and it's mysterious and that we're connected to it. Um, but as I said, that, that's not the way, that's not the way we're taught or conditioned to see things. We've been taught and conditioned to see the surface, to think that the surface is what is. We've been, in a sense, we've been conditioned to be a bit like people um, in a boat on the surface of the ocean who just see the blue surface of the sea um, and think that that is all there is. Um, completely unaware of all those fabulous creatures and uh, that are a bit coursing about below them and uh, all the unimaginable beauty that's down there and the buried treasure in the caves, etc., etc. And then because we see, because we just see the surface reality often, all too often, as what's real, and that's where we live, we spend our lives in flurry and hurry about surface things, making so much mental noise and chatter that we can never hear the voice of our own depths. We're just sort of carried along by all this superficial concern. So um, I think it's really important. Um, we, le we live in a world that encourages us to be shallow people. Uh, we live in a society that encourages us to be shallow people. So the question I want to address in this talk is, 
In a world that encourages us to be shallow people, how can we connect with our depths? How can we connect with the depths of the way things are? And how can we live deep lives? Because unless we take account of the deep nature of things, um, the depths of ourselves and the deep nature of reality, we will be unfulfilled. We'll be unfulfilled uh, and unhappy. Our life will be lacking in meaning. We'll feel empty and lacking. And uh, we'll always be snatching around for something to give us some satisfaction. So to feel fulfilled, we need to live a life that is in accord with the deep nature of things. We need to live a Dharma life in the fullest sense, a life that's in accord with the nature of things. And Dharma is the nature of things. So that's what I'm going to be looking at in this talk. And also looking at uh, what part can symbols, images, mantra, ritual and myth play in helping us to get below the surface of things. Okay, so I've said that there are two aspects to the depths we need to connect with. We can think of them in two ways. Uh, our own depths, the depths of our own being and our own mind, and the depths of the universe, the depths of what is the deep nature of reality. Um, so, okay, I'm going to talk about our own depths first, if you like. Um, most of us, we probably think we know ourselves quite well. Um, we think we know what we're thinking, we think we know what we're feeling, and we think we know what our motivations are. That's the way we humans are. We think we know. Um, but sometime around the beginning of the 20th century, the new discipline of psychology and psychiatry, psychoanalysis, came out of the woodwork and it challenged that view uh, in a big way. Revolutionaries like Freud and Jung came out of the woodwork and shocked the world by telling us the truth about ourselves, that for most of the time, most of us, unless we make a special effort um, to become more aware of our depths, we haven't got a clue about what's really motivating us. <laughs> Uh, what our real motivations and drives. We don't actually know what makes us live and act as we do. Um, we may think we have a set of really rational ideals and goals that guide our life. Um, but most of our being is subconscious, unconscious. Um, we're profoundly influenced by deep drives and emotions that we just don't even know are there. So an analogy that I often like to use about this, and apologies to people who come here from Sheffield, because you've probably heard me say this about a dozen times, is the analogy of the horse and the rider. Okay, So we can imagine a horse and a rider. The rider is our conscious, rational mind. The horse is our deep drives and volitions. And uh, very often the rider thinks, I'm going over there. Nirvana. The pure land. And everybody else can see that the horse is going over there. Um, the horse is going where the horse wants to go. And very often the horse is <coughs> travelling towards um, a warm stable, a full nose bag, uh, attractive horses of the opposite sex, or attractive horses of the same sex, according to the horse's proclivities. Um, but the horse is going where the horse wants to go. Everybody else can see this, but you know we think we're going over there. So that's why we, we probably all know Marxists who've accumulated property, environmentalists who um, live a fairly consumer lifestyle, etc., etc. <coughs> the horse goes where the horse wants to go. And that's if it's a relatively sane horse. It goes towards a full nose bag, a warm stable, and attractive horses. Um, <coughs> If it's not, those things at least make a certain sense at a horse level. But if it's not such a sane horse, just taking one sort of random example, if it's a horse that never got on with its father and had authority problems as a result, um, it might find itself always charging off to pick fights with older horses <coughs> that remind it of its father. And the poor rider will be wondering, why am I getting no closer to enlightenment? Why do I always seem to be getting into these battles? Um, and he'll be having to justify his battles um, that keep blowing him off course. So I suppose that's one of the ways. That's one of the ways that the, 
that we have debts we need to contact, we need to connect with. If we want to get where, go where we want to go, we need to become aware of our horse and we need to learn to speak to our horse. We need to learn to talk to our horse. We need to get the horse on our side. And to do that, we need to learn the language of the horse. And horses aren't particularly susceptible to rational argument um, and uh, philosophical discourse. They respond um, to a different level of things. They're much more likely to respond to symbol, myth, uh, music, ritual, and uh, myth, etc. Those are the languages of the horse, the languages of the depths. So that's one way in which we have depths. Um, but these depths in which that I'm talking about in our minds and our beings don't just consist of the sort of dumb, primitive drives that um, I've symbolised by the horse. Um, as long as we live just on the surface levels of our being, um, we also have potentials and resources within ourselves that we never become aware of and which just go to waste. There are treasures under the surface of the ocean as well as sharks. Um, if you so it's a bit as though, it's a bit as though, deep down inside us, there is this great medieval banqueting hall hung with wonderful tapestries. And down the centre of this banqueting hall, there is this table, this long banqueting table. And at the banqueting table are all these figures, these wonderful figures, sitting on beautifully, richly carved thrones, decked out in uh, colourful robes and clothing. There are kings and there are queens. There are magicians, bards, great warriors, sorceresses, sages, great spiritual figures of all kinds. And they are all fast asleep. And they're all covered with cobwebs. And every now and then, one of them sort of opens his eye and says, what's he doing now? Oh, he's got, he's got promotion to middle management. He's bought a house in the suburbs. Boring. And we'll go back to sleep. So, to live, to become the men we could be, we've got to bring those figures alive. Um, we've got to wake up those figures in the cellar to become the men we could be. And so we need to learn to lead, lead, speak the language of the horse. And we need to learn a language that will wake up, get the attention of the figures in our cellar. So we need to speak the language of the depths. It's no use using the language of reasoning and rational ideas. Now, Buddhism is an incredibly rational tradition. It's why I got involved in the Dharma. It makes sense. I was trained as a scientist. The Dharma makes sense. Uh, the Bu Buddhism is a very rational tradition, but it also speaks the language of the depths because it has to, because it has to, to get the, to get the depths on our side. Um, it seeks to awaken <coughs> the sleeping figures in our cellar. And so the, the Buddhist tradition does this using the language of the depths, using images, mantras, ritual, and mythic stories. So, okay, images, images, uses images. Um, images can be trivial. Um, if by image we just mean a sort, any sort of visual representation. Um, we're all bombarded with trivial images all the time, adverts, etc., etc. We're bombarded with trivial images. But what I mean by an image um, here is something a bit different. So I think a true image, the sort of image I'm talking about, is something, if you like, that comes from a deeper level of reality than we usually experience. It's a sort of message from a deeper level of reality. So if we're lucky, if we're lucky, very occasionally, maybe in deep meditation, maybe in dreams, maybe even in, visual, in visionary experiences, um, an image of that sort um, may well up from the depths of nature, from the depths of the way things are, uh, from the depths of our mind and the depths of reality, carrying with it a really strong sense of meaning. Um, 
maybe something that maybe a meaning that can't even be put into words. Um, it will come along accompanied by powerful feelings, maybe feelings that we never felt before, maybe feelings we don't have a word for. So this, this, as it were, message from below the surface, it might be a visual, it might be a visual image, but it might be uh, like no visual image we've ever seen with our eyes. Um, it might have colours that don't exist in this world. Um, or it might not be visual at all. It might be music. It might come through other senses. Um, and such experiences, I think, such experiences are the origin of the images of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas um, and the mantras of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas that we use to engage with these figures. Um, these figures are, if you like, realities beneath the surface, which some people, some time, have actually had some genuine connection with. Um, that's where image and mantra comes from. Okay, most of us do not have that sort of experience, or only very occasionally. We might just get a bit of a glimpse, a fleeting glimpse into that other dimension of experience. But when someone who does have that sort of experience in its fullness, uh, when someone is gifted that sort of experience, um, of that deep level of reality, sometimes they make an attempt to reproduce it, um, to help others to follow where they have gone. Um, maybe if they're an artist, they attempt to paint the unpaintable. Um, or maybe they just describe it. Maybe they just describe it in words and then maybe somebody else takes up their description and attempts to portray that as an image, as a visual image. So the painting or whatever that is a result of that experience can never be, it can never be the experience. It can only be, it can, it lacks loads of dimensions. If it's a painting, it's a two-dimensional experience of a six-dimensional, uh, a two-dimensional representation of a, an experience that has more dimensions than we can cope with. Um, many dimensions. So what we get is not the experience. What we get is not, the, and it's certainly not the reality behind the experience. But what happens over, over time, a tradition develops. And from that sort of experience, um, a tradition develops that, uh, well, whatever Padmasambhava say, for example, whatever Padmasambhava is, that, um, well, that is how you represent him. That is how you represent him a bit like that. Um, you represent him as full of energy, royal, maybe a bit challenging, maybe a bit frightening with the various accoutrements. That's, that, that's the accumulation of people's experience of the reality that whatever Padmasambhava is beneath the surface of things. Um, this, that's the way we, we, um, we represent him. So we get an image like that. Just, and that image, in a sense, we could say it's a, like a very dirty window um, onto another dimension of experience that exists beneath the surface. I mean, maybe so dirty that it's pretty opaque, actually. We, you know, hardly any light shines through from the reality that is Padmasambhava. Um, maybe um, if we meditate on it, if we contemplate it, if we bear it in mind, something will shine through it, but maybe it's quite opaque. Well, that might all sound incredibly pessimistic, so what use are most of these images if they're just opaque windows? Um, but I think something else happens as well when we get a tradition of representing images like this. Uh, as the tradition develops, as we have a tradition of representing Padmasambhava, say like that, um, more and more people look at this image. Um, more and more people respond to this image. More and more people meditate on this image, contemplate this image, use that image as a gateway into the reality that Padmasambhava represents. And maybe as more and more people use that gateway, they sort of beat a path to the reality of what Padmasambhava is. So that um, the more people use that gateway, the easier it gets for others to follow. I couldn't possibly attempt to explain this rationally, but I think it I think it might well happen. Um, so when we contemplate an image of Padmasambhava, like that one, for example, although it could never represent adequately the experience 
facts is that it's 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 trying to. The, uh, it can never be um, the original experience of Padmasambhava. Maybe we do find something um, that something shines through. Maybe maybe something does shine through because other people have done some of the work for us. Other people have beaten the path from that image to the reality of whatever Padmasambhava is. So maybe that's maybe that's what goes on. And maybe that's why it seems that we can actually have a strong experience from contemplating an image uh, like that one or like the various images that we see that we see around us. Um, why sometimes it does seem to come alive. Um, and why the actual experience of chanting a mantra, for example, can be that it actually does invoke something real. It can never be the experience that led to its as it were, its birth, but it does invoke something very real, very distinct, a very distinct kind of energy. Um, why chanting the Padmasambhava mantra, for example, seems to give us a completely different experience, a different feeling, a different energy from chanting the Tara mantra, as though there is something coming through from that deeper level of reality. Um, we're getting a sort of homeopathic dose of Padmasambhava or Tara through chanting the mantra. Um, and the two are quite different. They have quite different effects. Okay, so we use image and mantra uh, as a way of engaging with these realities that exist below the surface, these realities which are, yeah, they're certainly not the image, they're not the mantra. Um, we could talk about them as the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. We could talk about them as the Buddhas, the archetypal Buddhas and Bodhisattvas of the Buddhist tradition. So we could talk about the archetypal Buddha. Um, okay, the Buddha was an actual human being with a body that died two and a half thousand years ago. Um, that actual human being with a body is not contactable. Um, but that's not the experience of an awful lot of Buddhists, the, uh, the experience of an awful lot of Buddhists is that we can still contact something which is the Buddha. We can still contact something in meditation, for example, which has incredibly deep meaning, comes with incredible an incredible array of emotions. We can seem to contact this, what we're going to call an archetypal Buddha. It's still there. There's something still there that we can connect with. Uh, so we have an archetypal Buddha who's the main archetype in Buddhism of enlightenment, the enlightened being. And then we have all the other Buddhas and Bodhisattvas that, as it were, branched off from the original Buddha figure, the ones we see around us all over the place, Amitabha, uh, Akshobhya, um, Tara, um, Manjugosha, Bodhisattva of wisdom. We have this sort of plethora of other archetypal figures um, that we can use mantra and image to relate to. Um, okay, when people first come across these, uh, you know, if you haven't come across these already, uh, when people first come across these images, these these figures, there's usually a couple of questions that we ask. One is. Um, are they real? Are these figures real? Um, well, it depends what you mean by real. Um, of course, these figures do not exist in the same way that a chair or a teacup exists. Okay, You can't drink tea out of them. Um, but chair, are chairs and teacups, are chairs and teacups more real than meta? Are chairs and teacups more real than dignity or courage? Um, and then, are you and I real? Um, the Dharma tells us we don't have any real, independent, separate existence. We're constantly changing, completely conditioned by what is around us. So, you could say that these figures are not real, but that they are more real than you and me. And they're certainly more real than a teacup. Um, why do we make this distinction between things that have some sort of surface 
that appear on the surface and things that exist perhaps more in the depths of reality. And the second question people often ask is, well, are these figures just in the mind? Did we just invent them? Or do they have some sort of existence, real existence of their own? I suppose it's the same, it's the same question in a way. Okay, many people in the West prefer to think that the archetypal Buddhas and Bodhisattvas um, prefer to think of them as coming from the depths of our minds, um, as expressions of our deepest potentials. Um, so if we see things that way, then by evoking these figures, we sort of we sort of get our potentials out there where we can relate to them. And then by thinking about them, meditating on them, we can sort of make them, we can step into them, we can make them real. That's one way of thinking about it. Um, and if thinking that way works for you, and the other things I'm going to say, beware, the other things I'm going to say in a moment seem like complete nonsense, then hey, that's great, you know, go with that, go with that, that's fine. Um, but for many people, and I have to say I'm one of them, um, that is not how we experience these figures. Um, figures like Padmasambhava, figures like Manjushri, who I meditate on, the Bodhisattva of, uh, of, of wisdom. When we meditate on these figures, when we use image that we conjure up in our mind or that's on paper, when we use image and mantra um, to invoke these figures, what we experience is something very powerful that seems absolutely certainly to have a very real existence independent of us. Um, an external force in the universe, an external energy in the universe that we can tap into. That is many people's actual experience. And when it's your actual experience, it's actually very difficult to deny it, even if, it, um, even if, even if one's reason sort of says, well, how could this be? How could this be? Um, Actually, both ways of thinking, they're aspects of our minds, and they're aspect, they actually exist in the, in, 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 in the, in the depths of reality. Um, they both have their advantages and their disadvantages. And ultimately, the Dharma would tell us that they, that neither is completely true, and neither is completely false. Because ultimately, uh, that duality that we create between our own minds and what we think of as the outer universe, is an artificial one. Ultimately, the two are not different. Ultimately, we are part of that reality, and there's not a difference. Personally, um, I am convinced that what we contact when we evoke figures like the archetypal Buddha, or Padmasambhava, or Manjigosha, um, that, what we, that what we contact is something that we have no words for, and which is beyond the categories in which we're used to thinking. Um, so there's not much we can say about it, really. Um, um, I think maybe the closest we can get um, is to think of them as both potentials in ourselves and realities that exist behind the surface in the depths of things. Um, and for me, I think that the most appropriate and effective way to relate to them is though they were actual beings as though they were actual beings, separate from us, with some of the qualities that we associate with human beings, um, such as awareness and compassion and volition, but taken to a completely new level, taken to a level that we will never experience in a human being. Um, a much higher way than, we, than those qualities manifest in us. Um, and if that seems like, well, the dandy has really gone off on one now, um, well, you know, we don't know the nature of things. We don't know the nature of things. And as Sangharachita has said, if we relate to the universe as dead, if we think that um, that we inhabit this sort of dead outer universe, then we don't actually have much hope spiritually. The universe is much more mysterious than we think. And part of that mystery is that... Um, I'm going to shut up. I don't know. I can't say anything about it, okay? But part of that mystery is that there's much more possible than we think. Um, okay, but however we like to think of these images, these figures, the empirical reality is that if we can put our sceptical mind on hold for a while, they work. They work in a spiritual sense. Um, imagery, symbol, colour, mantric sound can evoke something 
They can open up channels to a deeper reality, uh, put us in touch with deep feelings and deep meanings, um, put us in touch with deeply buried potentials in ourselves. Um, they can stir our depths, wake up the figures in our cellar, and persuade our horse to, to serve something that's higher than itself. Um, ultimately, I think they can lead us to live a life that reflects a, the deeper nature of reality, uh, the deeper nature of the reality that we are part of. Um, okay, yeah, I mean, I, we, I use the word, rather glibly use the word archetypal figures. So it might be worth having a little bit of a detour into that. Um, Archetypes. I think the word archetype was first used um, in this way by the psychologist Carl Jung, I think. Um, so Jung studied images um, and myth and dreams from a wide range of cultures uh, from all over the world. And he noticed that there seemed to be deep patterns that expressed themselves um, through image and myth over and over again. Um, in all these different cultures, even when there was no possibility that these cultures had come in contact and had learnt these things from each other. Um, so he deduced from this, what he deduced from this was that there are deep patterns and potentials within our, what he called our collective mind, if you like, um, that came along with a deep sense of meaning. Um, and he called those deep patterns archetypes. Um, so, for example, over and over again in different cultures, we see myths and images that evoke the archetype of the wise old man, the wise woman, the warrior, the king, the magician, the lover, the golden youth, the compassionate savioress, that the queen of hearts archetype that many people projected onto Lady Diana while she was still alive. Um, and in our culture, these, these, these archetypes often crop up in a sort of corrupted and cheapened form in movies um, and fiction and celeb culture and that sort of thing. And um, so we could, when we use the word archetype, I suppose we're using the word in the sense that Carl Jung used it. But I wouldn't like, what I wouldn't like to do is sort of cheapen um, the Buddhist, the idea of the Buddhist figures by, 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 by um, thinking that they're just something psychological. Because I think that these figures and these archetypes, in fact, have their roots in, in a reality that goes deeper than the separation between us and the outer world. They're actually built into the nature of things. <clears throat> okay, and, and Padmasambhava. We mentioned Padmasambhava. We're going to invoke Padmasambhava, if you like, as our um, patron figure for this uh, for this weekend. Um, Padmasambhava, obviously, is one of these archetypal figures um, that we can relate to through image and mantra. Um, and he's a figure we're going to be evoking over the weekend. Because he's particularly associated with this theme of stirring the depths, of getting the depths on our side. Historically, Padmasambha is said to be the first person who successfully introduced Buddhism to Tibet. Um, that's what he's famous for. And um, the central incident of his life, then, is the, is, the, is the story of the way he did that. Um, so the story runs that King Trisong Detsan of Tibet wanted to introduce the Dharma to his country. Um, so sometime around the year 760 of the Christian era, he invited the abbot of Nalanda University, Shantarakshita, to come to Tibet to establish the first monastery and temple. Um, so Shantarakshita was a highly respected scholar and by all accounts a very good man, a very good Buddhist. So the king provided him with the funds and the workmen he needed to build the monastery, which was to be called Samye. But as time went on, as the building was supposed to be progressing, um, it became obvious that something was really, really wrong here. Um, despite all the hard work, uh, despite the fact that the builders all got up every morning and beavered away, it became obvious that they were, the building was getting nowhere. Um, because although the human workers toiled uh, hard to build the walls of the monastery during the daylight hours, <coughs> at night, all sorts of forces came out from the deep places in Tibet, from the caves and the depths of the lakes and the inaccessible gorges, and in the darkness, these so-called demons scattered the stones and undid everything that the humans had done 
during the day. Okay, this is a mythical story. You know, it's not meant to be history. It's not meant to be history. We're not supposed to take it literally. There's a difference between mythic truth and historical truth. It is not trying to describe history, but it is getting at a truth that exists at a deeper level, beneath the surface. Um, in exactly the same way that in our horse and rider analogy, the rider does not achieve what he consciously wants to achieve um, because the horse has other ideas. He doesn't get where he wants to go because the horse has other ideas. In just the same way, the rational scholar Shantarakshita and his human workers working in the daytime light of consciousness, the conscious rational mind, do not achieve what they set out to achieve. Um, because all their efforts are undermined by deeper forces, if you like, within the psyche, psyche of Tibet. These are forces they are not aware of because they, they act in the darkness. They act in the darkness representing the unconscious and these forces have other ideas. These forces uh, do not want the Dharma in Tibet. They are happy with the way things are. They're having too much fun and they like the darkness. Um, and maybe sometimes our Dharma practice seems a bit like that. Maybe, you know, we get up every morning and we meditate and we seek to practice the precepts <coughs> and we study and we go to classes and um, we work to build up a better being. Um, but something always seems to knock us back down. Um, we find ourselves in all sorts of situations that aren't helping at all and we don't quite know how we got there and so on. So this is what is happening. It's a, there's, there's a clear analogy. This is what is happening to Shantarakshita and his workers in Tibet. He and his human workmen beaver away. They try their hardest, but they're not getting anywhere. Um, so eventually Shantarakshita admits defeat. Um, he goes to the king and he says, I can't do this, but I know somebody who can. And that somebody is Padmasambhava. Um, Padmasambhava is a very different sort of Buddhist from Shantarakshita. Shantarakshita is probably what most people think a Buddhist should be like. Um, he is scholarly, well-behaved, unthreatening, maybe even saintly. <laughs> But Padmasambhava is a different sort of thing altogether. He's got some wildness about him. He is challenging. He is a bit dangerous. We're told that um, before he went to Tibet, he was living in and meditating in cemeteries and cremation grounds where he would dance with wild, naked female sky dancers. Which I don't think Shantarakshita would do, actually. Um, so the king sends off his delegation. He asked Padmasambhava to come to Tibet to do what Shantaraksha couldn't. Um, so Padmasambhava goes to Tibet and instead of ignoring the so-called demons that have been stopping the building, he sets about converting them to the Dharma. So he doesn't try to destroy them, he sets out to tame them and get them on his side. He doesn't, neither ignores them nor tries to destroy them. Some of them he converts by showing them the spiritual riches he's offering, uh, giving them an idea of just how wonderful it would be to be more enlightened. So um, he's sending the message, I'm not coming to stop the fun, I'm coming to offer a richer life. So for example, in one episode, he conjures up a mass of gold, a mass of spiritual gold, and he pours it into one of the deep lakes as an offering to the Nagas, the dragon-like beings that live in the depths that have been opposing the Dharma. So he gives them a taste of the spiritual riches that he is bringing. So they support and protect him rather than opposing him. That's one way of doing it. Some female demons he makes love to, and that gets them on his side. Um, some other demons, some other demons, some other so-called demons anyway, he converts by shock and awe. They just, he just shows them who's boss and they go, yep, okay, I'll uh, go along with you. Um, but in all those words, in all those ways, he converts the demons of Tibet into Dharma protectors. So they don't just ignore him and let him get on with it. They help him. Uh, they use all that energy that's tied up in, the, if you like, the coarse energies they represent. They use that 
for the benefit of the Dharma and the Sangha. So we're told that whereas before, at night, the demons came out and knocked down the walls and put the wall stones back where they started from, now these deep forces build the walls at night even faster than the men build them during the daytime. So that the monastery seems to go up at this miraculous pace. And that's what can happen when we get the depths on our side. Things just seem to happen in a quite miraculous way. Um, and we all need we all need a bit of Padmasambhava in our spiritual lives. Um, if we want to build the wiser and more compassionate and stronger and more energetic and creative person that we could become, and if we don't want to see our efforts undermined, we need a bit of Padmasambhava. We've all got a lot well, I have. I assume you have. We've all got a lot of coarse energy um, that don't always see our lives, want, well, don't always want to see our lives becoming a Dharmic kingdom, just like the demons of Tibet didn't. Um, our demons, our coarse energies, um, think that, well, really becoming a Dharma practitioner is going to thwart all our desires. It's going to stop our fun. Um, so I think we've I think we've all got a lot of coarse energy tied up in drives like various cravings, competitiveness, desires for power, desires for status, all that sort of thing. We've all got some subset of that sort of rather unlovable bunch. Um, and there's a lot of energy tied up in there. Um, if we don't think we do, if we think we're probably, if we think we're really nice men, whose motivations are all positive and indeed angelic, um, we probably don't know ourselves very well. Um, and if we try to pretend that those coarse energies aren't there, we'll be like Shantarakshita. At night they will come out of the, they will come out of the caves, they'll come out of the uh, lakes, and they will knock down what we build. Uh, we won't get anywhere with our practice. So we can't ignore those coarser drives. We've got to... Uh, we can't destroy them either because a lot of our energy is tied up in them. So we have to convert them to the Dharma. Um, we need to do what Padmasambhava did. Um, we need a bit of Padmasambhava energy to do that. Um, so yeah, Padmasambhava is another example of one of these deep figures that we perhaps need to contact a bit. A sort of deep pat, a sort of energy, or even a being that we can evoke from the depths of our minds, from the depths of reality. So he's sometimes described as the archetype of the magician. Um, the he's a magician because he transforms. He transforms energies. So he transforms, he can tame demons. Uh, that's what he's doing, I think, in that picture there. You can not in that one, but you could, off, off screen in that picture, if you want to have a look at it, there's a demon, and Padma Sandhava is going, taming it. He's taming the demon. Um, he can tame demons. In more prosaic language, he can transform coarse energies um, can, that might oppose our Dharma life. He can transform them into energies that we can use to progress spiritually, that we can use to have the personal energy and power to make a real contribution to serve the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. He's also the archetype of the guru. Uh, he's often said to be that, the slightly fierce teacher who looks on us with compassionate eyes, but at the same time sees that to change, we need to get out of our comfort zone. So he's challenging us to get out of our comfort zone. Um, he's not cuddly. So um, tomorrow, Surya Vamsa and Vijakaya are going to talk a bit about the image of Padmasambhava and the mantra of Padmasambhava. And I don't want to tread on their toes. Um, but I will just, for, just draw attention to a couple of things about him. One is this combination of compassion and challenge. So he's often said to have a wrathful smile. He's smiling at us compassionately. But he looks a bit fierce, a bit challenging. He's saying, get up. Get out of your ruts, get out of your comfort zone, do something different. Um, and um, he's got various attributes that uh, stir the depths. He's got a trident, which is a thing that people use for catching fish in the depths. And um, he's got all these 
things to do with death about him, like severed heads and bones, skull cups. And, and if these aren't going to, I mean, if, if you actually think about that, they raise energy. They raise quite primal energy because they're scary. He's scary. There's lots of energy that he raises. Um, it's very difficult to really contemplate Padmasambha without being, um, you've had a bit of an electric charge. Um, Okay, so that's a little, very little bit about Padmasambhava. And we'll be invoking Padmasambhava in our ritual tonight and in our mantra. Uh, <coughs> so, okay, I've talked about how the Dharma uses image, mantra, ritual, and myth to speak to our depths. And the story of Padmasambhava converting the demons of Tibet is an example of myth. It's a, it's a mythic story. Um, so sometimes in our society, the word myth is taken to mean something that just isn't true. Um, that reflects the surface, um, the fact of our, our society's shallow surface view of things. Um, myth is not true. It doesn't describe the history. Uh, but real myth is not meant to be true at the surface level. Um, real myth um, expresses deeper truths that lie beneath the surface. And I hope you can see how the Padmasambhava story just does that. Um, so um, a true myth is a sort of archetype in action, if you like. Um, it's a story, so it's got movement, it's dynamic, it expresses a deep meaning but in a dynamic sort of way. And many myths are stories that we can live by. They're stories that actually can inform the way we live. Um, we can live a shallow, and, and we all live a, we all live a story. We may not be aware of it, but we actually all live a story. We may not think so, but we do. We can live a shallow and meaningless story. Uh, or we can live out a deep story that expresses the depth of reality, calls up our deepest potential, gives our life meaning, makes it vivid. So, for example, we can live out a shallow story. We can live out a story based on the idea that the surface is all there is. Form is not deep, as the Buddha tells us. The surface is all there is. The universe, there are no deep meanings. There are no uh, spiritual values built into the nature of things. The universe is meaningless, and our life is meaningless. And that will lead us to live out a certain sort of life. We could live out a story in which the point of things is worldly success. We could live out the romantic myth in which we think that if I could just find the right partner, everything would be fine. I have a soulmate somewhere, and if I find him or her, that would be it. Um, we could live out a story where it's all about comfort and security. You know, We're blobs of protoplasm on a rock hurtling through space at unimaginable speeds, and we want to be safe and secure. Um, we could live out that myth. Um, we could live out the myth of the victim or the loner or the rebel. We can live out all sorts of myths. Or we could live out a deeper story, a true myth that makes our life meaningful and vivid. Um, because it's not enough to just stir our depths and leave it at that. We could stir our depths have some sort of frisson of experience by chanting a mantra and feeling something or contemplating an image. But unless we start to live in a way that makes sense to the figures in our cellar, we might stir them a bit, but that they will go back to sleep if we're still living a boring story. They'll open their eyes and they'll go boring and they'll go back to sleep. Um, to bring our full potential alive, we need to live out a deeper story, a story that makes our life truly meaningful. Um, so, a life that is in accord with the nature of things, a Dharma life. We could live out a Dharma life. In fact, the Dharma life is a myth that includes many overlapping myths. And we could live out any one of those. We could live out any number of lives, any number of myths which in a way, represent the Dharma life. So just for example, just for example, one myth of the spiritual life that's been powerful for me is the myth of the Sangha as the Bodhisattva. Um, and the myth of the pure land. 
So you might know that in uh, Mahayana Buddhism, you might have come across the fact that in Mahayana Buddhism, the Bodhisattva is seen as a sort of ideal Buddhist. So the Bodhisattva is a, a, a practitioner who is seeking liberation, not just to liberate themselves, but they're seeking to help liberate all beings. They see their practice as part of a movement towards higher consciousness for all beings. They see themselves as having to, as being part of that, that, that stream towards enlightenment. They're seeking enlightenment for us, not enlightenment for me. So Sangharashtra has said, well, I mean, in some ways he's encouraged us to adopt the Bodhisattva ideal, but he's also said that it is unrealistic of us to think of ourselves as Bodhisattvas. Um, we are not going to save all beings, and anyway, it will probably lead us to become very big-headed. I am a Bodhisattva. I am seeking to save all beings. Um, and instead, I mean, it, it, that could have the effect of just sort of increasing our ego rather than helping to un helping us to overcome our ego. Instead, he's encouraged us to think of the whole order of a bodhisattva, the, the tree round the order as a bodhisattva if we're ordained, or to think of our sangha or our center as a bodhisattva. So instead of seeing ourselves as bodhisattvas, we see ourselves as participating in the bodhisattva activity of something larger than ourselves. Um which involves many people. So we get ourselves, our little selves, out of the way as much as we can so that something larger than ourselves can act through us, so that the bodhisattva spirit can act through us. So Sangharachita has suggested that an image for this might be the thousand-armed Avalokiteshvara. The Im image for the Sangha as bodhisattva might be the thousand-armed Avalokiteshvara. If you've ever seen this rather weird image it's uh, Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, and he has a thousand arms spread out in a great circle. And each of them is offering something different. Some are offering books, some are offering um, all sorts of things. I mean, these days some would be offering trowels, some would be offering food mixes, some would be offering, uh, I don't know, brooms, uh, all different things. All these different arms are offering different things. But they are, all those different arms are responding to something uh, they're responding to the same thing because at, at his heart, the thousand arms Avalokiteshvara holds the jewel, the jewel of metta, the jewel of the Bodhisattva spirit. Um, so, in the image of a thousand, the thousand armed Avalokiteshvara, the arms are individuals. They haven't subsumed their individuality. Um, they're all offering their particular gifts to the world, but they're all united by responding to the same jewel the Bodhisattva spirit that Avalokiteshvara holds to his heart. And for me, helping to create, seeing the centre that I work at as, in a way, that, seeing that myth as underlying it, helping to create the thousand-armed Avalokiteshvara, being one of its arms, is a myth that has given my life meaning. Um, and I think brought out the best in me. I think that it's done far more for my spiritual, spiritual development than uh, I would have done by going off and simply meditating in solitude. It doesn't mean that we don't also do the things that we need to do to go deeper in ourselves, but it means we do that in a different spirit. We do that in order to be of use as well as simply to, um, to experience things that happen in the privacy of our own mind. And so, yeah, I think that that myth has been a serious part of my spiritual practice. And for me, that myth is connected to another myth, the myth of the pure land. So there's a myth that Buddhas create a pure land around themselves. They create an environment in which um, beings who have a connection with that Buddha uh, can experience perfect conditions. They can experience wonderful conditions in which they will grow, develop, um, flourish. So uh, Sangharachita, uh, the founder of the order, has also said that the real meaning of the pure land myth is that, if you like, the bodhisattva, the spiritual practitioner, the bodhisattva gathers a community of people around themselves. Um, they gather a people, they gather a community, and create a community in which spiritual values uh, prevail, a community... Um, in which people can grow, develop a community that nurtures people. They gather people and those people gather more people so that that community becomes the pure land. 
We could say that community also becomes the thousand-armed Avalokiteshvara. That community is a pure land in which people can flourish, grow and develop. So I try, again, to see the centre that I work at um, as the Bodhisattva, gathering a community of people who, to a greater or lesser extent, allow the Bodhisattva spirit to act through them, becoming an arm of the thousand-armed Avalokiteshvara. And I try to see my work at the centre as helping that to happen, helping to gather that community, being one of the arms uh, that reaches out to others. And that gives what I do real meaning for me. You know, when I have another beginner's class. Um, But if you're responding to something, a, a mythic image like that, it gives it a completely different dimension. Um, and that may not be a myth that works for you. Um, but to really live out our depths, um, to really bring out our depths alive, I think we all need to live a story that has a bit of a mythic element. That story has a mythic element, and I think we all need a mythic element. And we need to commit We need to commit to living out that story. So it's no good just stirring the depths. We need to live from the depths. Um, We need to wake those figures in our cellar. And um, to do that, we need to live with as much wholehearted commitment to a story of life that has a mythic element as we can muster. Um, Those figures in our cellar are not interested in half-hearted people. They're only interested in people who are really doing it. Um, So commitment is also completely central. It's not enough to stir the figures in the cellar. We then have to respond to the voices and the intimations that we get from those figures in our cellar. We have to live according to them. And it's because commitment is so primary, because commitment is completely central, because we're not going to get anywhere unless we commit, because unless we commit, we'll live a shallow life. It's for those reasons that things like becoming a mitra or particularly preparing for ordination are such important steps, because they involve commitment. They involve making a commitment. And without commitment, we cannot live a deep life. We stay on the surface. So we probably all heard that famous quote from Goethe. I think there's even questions about whether it was Goethe, but it's a great quote which is the moment that one commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would not otherwise have happened. A whole stream of events issue from the decision, raising in one's favour all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance, which no one could have dreamed would come their way. Boldness has genius, magic, and power in it. We could say commitment has genius, (coughs) magic, and power in it. I think that's true. It's actually my experience. When we are committed, providence moves too. We hit obstacles. Of course we do. But then, when we're committed, we (coughs) discover resources in ourselves that we never knew we had. Our figures, the figures in our cellar come alive and we overcome, we find the resources to overcome those obstacles. And mysteriously, the universe seems to move too. Maybe that's because when we stir our depths, we stir our depths and our depths are connected to the depths of the universe, the depths of reality. So I think it's something to do with the fact that our depths and the depths of reality are not two separate things that we experience what we call shraddha, that we experience what Buddhists call shraddha. If you haven't come across that term before, it's often translated as faith. Shraddha is often translated as faith, but that's a very, very misleading translation because it doesn't involve believing this, that, and the other dogma or anything. What shraddha involves, what shraddha is, is, if you like, a sense of heart knowledge, a sense of direction that comes from quite deep. It's a whole body sense of direction. It involves our head, our heart, and our guts, if you like. We just simply know that this is the way we should be moving. This is, a, this is what is the right sort of life for me. We, we get it at various stages. We may get it when we first come across the Dharma, just, okay, this is, this is important, I'll go with this. That's an inkling of Shraddha. Um, And it can build up until it is almost a feeling in the body, a feeling of rightness in the body about the life that we're living. 
It's a heart knowledge and a sense of direction. So uh, Sangharachita has described Shraddha as the response of what is ultimate in us to what is ultimate in the universe. And I think we could rest- we could restate that. We could restate that as Shraddha arises when what is deepest in us responds to what is deepest in the universe. It, re- it, it arises because of the connection between what is deepest in us and what is deepest in the universe. And when Shraddha arises, it's because we have connected uh, with a story that involves myth that invokes our depths and which is also connected to the depths of things. Um, and we need to pay attention to our Shraddha. I think paying attention to our Shraddha is the thing that we need to do to live a deep life, um, to connect with our depths. If we listen to that Shraddha, then we li- will live more and more from our depths. We will live more and more according to the depth of the way things are. We will become deep people and we will live deep, fulfilling lives. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 